Post Reports is sponsored by The Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. In Season 2, The Asset explains how Trump is trying to use the government of Ukraine to help him win in 2020. Download The Asset today. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jam calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gabon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, December 2nd. Today, the White House strategy in the impeachment inquiry, the human cost of food delivery in China, and what teachers spend on school supplies. Up until this point in the impeachment inquiry, What has been one of the big complaints from Republicans and from the White House about how this has all played out? I think it's surrounded a lack of due process for the president. Mr. Schiff has been making the rules up as he goes along, and then he doesn't even follow the rules that he made up. So uh, they understand that process. I think that they've basically said that this has been organized as a partisan endeavor by Democrats aimed at obviously impeaching and removing the president. Actually, in the interviews, no White House lawyers can be there. No agency lawyers can be there. The State Department can't have lawyers there. They've argued that the president hasn't been given a fair shake in terms of the way that the process has been set up. What harm would it do to allow the president of the United States to introduce evidence? Why doesn't he? he what harm he would has it been, do? He has been That's called provided... Big, He has been provided every opportunity to provide exculpatory evidence on any of this, and they have chosen not to. No, he hasn't. No, he hasn't. I'm Mike DeBonis. I cover Congress for The Washington Post. And now, as the impeachment inquiry is turning toward the House Judiciary Committee, the president and the White House are finally getting a chance to have their side, theoretically. Theoretically, yeah. In the in the rules that the House passed for this impeachment inquiry, uh, the president is entitled to participate in these hearings, cross-examine the witnesses that Democrats call, suggest calling their own witnesses, present any other evidence that they potentially want considered by the committee. But there's a real question about whether they're actually going to take advantage of those opportunities. And right now, it seems like not only is the president not going to be participating in that, but no White House lawyers are going to be doing that either. That's right. I don't think there was ever uh, an expectation that the president personally would come show up on Capitol Hill and cross-examine his witnesses. But in a letter that the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, sent to the House Judiciary Committee on Sunday night, they basically said, we're not planning to participate in this hearing that you're having on Wednesday. And we're not sure that we're going to participate at all until you give us some idea of what exactly you have planned for this process going forward. Which, in some ways, I would imagine strikes people as somewhat hypocritical. The fact that up until this point, they've been talking about how they don't have a chance to participate. And then given the opportunity to show up at this hearing, cross-examine witnesses, they're saying, well, we want no part of this. Well, if not hypocritical, uh, ironic. The internal logic here can be hard to follow if you're not on Capitol Hill. But in, in the sort of cauldron, political cauldron of the Hill, it makes a certain amount of internal sense because for Republicans, this whole defense of the president has been casting this whole impeachment inquiry as a partisan witch hunt. And when you participate in your own witch hunt, it sort of undermines that narrative. So I think that there's a strategic decision happening here in the White House and among congressional Republicans that 
to the extent they participate in this, it undermines their best case against it. So then what do we actually expect from this hearing on Wednesday? So I think the substance of the hearing is going to be pretty boring. It's going to be most likely law professors, historical scholars, constitutional experts. We don't know exactly who they are at this point. We'll probably learn sometime in the next day or so. Basically testifying to what impeachment is, what qualifies for impeachment, to the facts that are known about this case, do they fit into what historically has been considered to impeachment. It's pretty boring stuff generally. But I think that the theater of it is going to be potentially compelling, especially since you have this whole new cast of characters on the Judiciary Committee, Chairman Jerry Nadler, Doug Collins, the ranking Republican, who really haven't had a front and center role in this impeachment process. And you've got a a committee of more than 40 House members. And the thing you have to understand about the Judiciary Committee is that it attracts some of the most partisan and zealous members of each party who are very skilled at making political arguments, legal arguments. And it's going to be just a very different feel than you saw in the Intelligence Committee, which is traditionally more sober, does a lot of its work behind closed doors. So if the witnesses in this hearing are going to be constitutional scholars and academics, I can imagine that what they're going to be talking about is not the details of what happened in Ukraine and who talked to who on the phone when and what exactly was said. What they bring to the table is more a kind of scholarly academic argument about what are the grounds to impeach a president and what is the historical precedent here. Right. They haven't been asked to come to discuss the facts. What we're expecting is there's going to be four experts, three of whom are picked by the Democrats, one of whom is picked by the Republicans. That's sort of in keeping with what the general practice is for uh, congressional hearings. And they're, they're not going to be experts on what exactly happened. Who, who did Rudy Giuliani tell about what? What did Gordon Sondland tell this person about that? These are people who are going to say, this is why, you know, the impeachment clauses are in the Constitution. This is how they've been interpreted in the past. This is how the fact pattern that we've seen described in the hearings might fit into the conception of impeachment. And, you know, I think that's going to be the the main thrust of what this is. And the fact that three of those witnesses are going to be brought by Democrats and only one is from Republicans, does that give credence to the argument from Republicans that this process isn't fair or is weighted toward Democrats? Um, Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it certainly gives ammunition to say, you know, they're treating this like another anything else that happens in the House, another partisan endeavor. I mean, what you have to understand is in a, typically in a House hearing, every committee has different rules, but all committees, the majority gets more say. But I think that they Republicans certainly have a point to say, like, this is not just another congressional hearing. This is the impeachment of a president. This is potentially removing someone chosen by the voters of the United States of America. Maybe we want to do this a little differently. So what do Republicans in Congress say about the fact that attorneys for the White House are refusing to participate in this hearing? I think they understand what the strategy is here, which is to make it clear that this is a Democratic impeachment, that Republicans are not part of this, that they're, they want to create the impression that they're being run over roughshod. And I think that there's, there's a pretty good level of understanding on the Republican part Uh, in Congress that the White House is going to stick to that strategy. That said, I think that there are particular parts of this that they think that the White House should take advantage of, whether it's 
potentially cross-examining some of these witnesses, whether it's suggesting that certain witnesses be called. The Republicans on the committee will have some of those same prerogatives. But I think generally speaking, I think that there's a good level of comfort with this strategy of making sure that it's perceived as partisan, that we don't do anything to sort of upset that narrative in the public's minds. So what is happening today ahead of Wednesday's hearing? So today, this evening, members of the House Intelligence Committee will be invited to review a draft of their report, basically synthesizing all of these depositions and hearings that they've done over the past two months into a document that is going to be forwarded to the Judiciary Committee. This is going to happen in in their closed-door facility in the basement of the Capitol. We're not going to get a direct look at it, at least until Tuesday evening. This all has to do with Intel Committee rules that they have to take a vote to release it. That vote has not been scheduled till Tuesday. So... And what has President Trump said about these latest events in the impeachment inquiry? So something that both President Trump and Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, said in his letter on Sunday night was basically a lot of anger about the fact that the Democrats have scheduled this hearing at the same time. The president is going to be overseas and he's going to be in London attending the NATO conference. I don't have any knowledge that Democrats specifically did this to create this issue where he's being impeached while the president is abroad. But, you know, this has happened before. And during the Clinton impeachment, President Clinton was in Israel when the House took their vote on forwarding articles to the floor. You know, this stuff happens. And, you know, I I don't think that the House was going to be in any mood to wait for the president to come back before doing their thing. Mike, thank you so much. My pleasure. Mike DeBonis covers Congress for The Post. The thing you have to realize is that there are 400 million people in China who use their smartphones to order meals. This is an absolutely embedded aspect of life as a middle-class person living in China. There are 400 million people who use their smartphones to order up a meal, sometimes once a day, sometimes twice a day, definitely at least once a week. That's Jerry Shi. He's a Beijing-based correspondent for The Post. And he said that people who live in China's big cities have become intensely reliant on cheap, fast food delivery. And that's had significant implications for the people who make those deliveries. A lot of people, sort of tongue-in-cheek, call delivery guys one of the four uh, modern inventions of Chinese civilization. They're so ubiquitous. You see them so, so often that during the National Day Parade in October, we actually had the government rolling out tanks. They were rolling out new missiles. Um, jet fighters, and sort of tongue-in-cheek. At one point, they had uh, these delivery guys wearing their colored bibs, riding their bikes down through Tiananmen Square. It It was quite a sight. So in some ways, I'm like, well, in every city, you have people who have started to use apps to order meals, and the people who have to deliver those meals are probably in a big rush. But what is different about their experience when it comes to Chinese delivery guys. 
I think you're right. I think that you know the the story that we're seeing in China is something that um, governments all over the world that um, people all over the world are wrestling with, which is basically what is the gig economy? What rights do these people have? What are the sort of the pressures and sort of the rewards that they have? Uh, the only difference is that I think the sheer scale of this, you know, $36 billion food delivery industry in China is just so staggering. But it's also, you know, let's face it, China can be one of these places that's developing so fast that a lot of times, you know, regulations are not really catching up. And so you have this system where there's three million of these guys on the streets. You know, injuries are absolutely rife. Uh, you know, we can only see snippets of, of sort of, you know, the conditions that they work under. But police in Shanghai say a, a delivery guy is, is, you know, seriously injured or, or dead, killed once every 60 hours on average. You know, they account for something like, you know, 12, 15 percent of the traffic accidents in Shenzhen. We have seen, you know, more than 125 published accounts of major crashes, accidents, deaths in just the last 18 months. So this is definitely a major problem. Police are coming out to talk about it. And, you know, state media has come out to talk about it. Basically, the, you know, it all comes back to what can we do to sort of get the algorithms, get these major tech companies to go easier on these guys because people are dying out on the street. So if there are all these injuries that, that people are experiencing, then why don't they just slow down or take fewer orders? Well, the the incentives really are to do as many jobs as you can. So some workers, for example, they sign up for this program where they get a priority when it comes to being assigned jobs. But the, the catch is that they have to accept 99% of these orders. And so if the, the, the jobs keep coming in, they're under pressure to accept them. And sometimes they'll do a dozen of them at the same time around, say, lunchtime. And the algorithms don't necessarily tell you, for example, where a street is cut off, where an alley is closed, what courtyard in these Chinese cities you can or cannot go into. And so that kind of throws a wrench all the time into these guys' jobs. And and so you just end up running red lights and cutting corners uh, sort of basically on a regular basis. And how many orders are, are people usually filling every day? And how much money do they make off of that on average? You know, that's the, the, the kind of the plus side of it. These these workers all the time, they'll tell you that despite all the, the safety concerns, this is actually an incredibly lucrative job. So they make about $1.10 uh, that's in U.S. per delivery. And a lot of times they're actually averaging more than $1,000 a month. If it's bad weather, say it's kind of in the dead of winter, or it's uh, in the summer months when it's really hot and the orders come in a lot, they're bringing in $1,500 or more per month. And that salary, if you're living in Beijing, is probably more than what, what a software programmer can make, which is pretty good for a lot of these guys who have like a sixth or seventh grade education coming from the Chinese countryside. For the people that you talked to, what did they say about their decision-making when it comes to choosing between doing a job that is dangerous or, or not doing this job? 
I spent a lot of time with a guy called John Pei, who lives about four or five hours south of Beijing in this uh, small little village that's actually next to China's steel belt. It's one of the poorest, most heavily polluted parts of China. So he dropped out of school and started working as a migrant worker when he was 15. So he's gone all over the country. He's sewn jackets. He's welded steel on construction sites. He's worked in factories and you know, assembly lines in Guangdong province. And about you know, four or five years ago, he uh, saw an ad that said you could come to Beijing and, and, and do delivery. And he decided to give it a shot and quickly decided that that's what he wanted to do. And so, what's the reason? It's 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 the pay. You know, his wife always tells him, including just uh, about two months ago when he got hurt. Uh, you know, she was sort of pleading with him. You know, maybe do something else. Why not think of something else? You know, you can always go and and maybe you know work in construction again. But all things considered, I think he really likes the job. Because yes, it's fourteen hours a day of work. It's you know he's working six days a week, but you know if he wanted to sort of take some downtime, he could only work five days a week, and and the money is good. So so I think you know that's the calculus that's that's happening in in each and every one of these guys' heads. How do you think the stories of these delivery workers fits into the larger picture of the growing gig economy in China? In China, for the last 30 years, you've had this enormous transition into a free market economy. Um, so peasants were basically unshackled from the land that they were working in the 1980s, and they were able to move into the cities and do whatever job they wanted. In some ways, you can almost view these delivery guys as kind of you know one sort of extreme of that. You know, they don't sign labor contracts. They work when they want, and the downside of that is that they also have very little uh, social safety nets. Um, if they get injured, um, they could be fired. You know, we have a lot of Chinese researchers, um, Chinese government officials, who are now sort of wrestling with this question of: Are they considered workers?、Um, should they be signing contracts? How much regulation should the government have over these people? And the interesting thing is that yes, in this you know nominally communist country, that at the same time is also hypercapitalist and with some very、uh, loosey goosey regulations sometimes. This country is also wrestling with the exact same questions that governments from California to to London to to everywhere else that ha- you know has these gig economy. Jobs they're all wrestling with, and so you know it's an interesting convergence of of technology around the world. Jerry, thank you so much. Thanks, Martine. Jerry Shi is a Beijing-based correspondent for the Post. To see the video of Zhang Pei and other delivery workers, go to PostReports.com. Post Reports is sponsored by the Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. On July twenty fifth, twenty nineteen, during a phone call with a foreign leader, 
Trump asked for a favor to investigate a political rival. Trump's call set off a cascade of events leading to the current impeachment proceedings. In season two, the asset shows how all roads lead to Russia and dissects how Trump tried to use the government of Ukraine to help him win in 2020. Download the asset today. And now one more thing from education reporter Valerie Strauss. Every year when school's about to start, I start to get emails about companies that are giving teachers free supplies or nonprofits that are opening up stores for teachers to go through and get things. And I realized that it's a real problem for teachers and it's something I've never really covered. So I decided to ask teachers directly, please tell me what you have to buy with your own money that's not reimbursable, why you buy it, and how much you spend a year. I purchase at least 150, if not 300 folders. The results were completely overwhelming. I buy 150 composition books, pens of every color. There were basic things you would think that schools would supply, paper, pencils, erasers. Colored pencils, I buy glue sticks, index cards. Markers, highlighters, index cards, crayons. Paint, glitter, glue sticks that work. Posters that would uh, help advance my students in mastering the English language. Choice reading books for our students, prizes for competitions, supplies for my sixth grade science class that I teach. Hand sanitizer, Clorox wet wipes. Garbage bags, tissues, light bulbs for my lamp. Absolutely the most basic things that you would expect a teacher and students to be able to find from a school and school district when they walk in, but they're just not there. There are statistics that show that, on average, 98% of American teachers spend about $500 a year of their own money on supplies, which is a stunning statistic to begin with. I've now come to think that that number, that figure, is more than we believe it is. So in the 24, 25 years I've been employed here, if you were to add all of the money that I have spent, I would say that it would equal about $25,000. So one of my early year salary. They find very unique ways, often time consuming, sometimes, you know, soul crushing in a way. As a teacher, I am a total scavenger. There are so many things that my students need. My friend is a works at the Department of Natural Resources in Lansing, Michigan. And when their binders are no longer good enough to use for their department, she gives them to me. One teacher told me that she's found supplies literally thrown on the side of the road and discovered she could use them because they weren't ruined. I looked and asked teachers around the country if they knew of any teacher that didn't have to buy something on their own. The answer came back from coast to coast, no. There's no district that I could find that provides teachers with absolutely everything they need. There are places that are trying to give teachers more money. There are places that are trying to make it faster and easier for teachers to get reimbursed for some of the supplies. But there's no real systemic effort in any district that I saw to eliminate the problem. What I realized is that the problem is indicative of a much more fundamental issue than simply there is no supplies in the classroom. It's really a symbol for the disrespect that American policymakers and, frankly, Americans have for teachers, for children, for schools. As I was reporting this, I kept wondering, 
what people in any other profession would do if they went to work. And their tools they needed to do their job weren't there. Honestly, it's very disheartening because you wouldn't ask a doctor to purchase their own Q-tips or their own medicine. Typically, any other job, they're going to provide you the supplies you need for that job. And it's just one of those situations where you just feel like day in and day out, you're just being used and you're not being treated fairly. And it just gets very, very depressing from time to time because you're having to do everything yourself with very little support. Valerie Strauss covers education for The Post. The teachers that we heard from were Fred Gamble Jr., Becky Cranson, Amanda Myrick, and Jennifer Molesse. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. We loved the feedback from one listener who left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts about our pre-Thanksgiving episode. They wrote, I like to listen to Post Reports while cooking dinner, and today was shocked, shocked at the turkey carcass story. What kind of person doesn't save their turkey carcass for soup? Listener, way to be a model for us all. Save your turkey carcass and leave Post Reports a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports is sponsored by The Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. In Season 2, The Asset explains how Trump is trying to use the government of Ukraine to help him win in 2020. Download The Asset today.